Hello and welcome to this BGOUI Knowledge podcast about professionalism in neurology. My name is Steve Payne and I'm fortunate enough to be joined today by my long-term friend and colleague Kieran O'Flynn. Kieran's numerous parallel careers include SAC Chair, Chairman of the JCIE Examination Board and President of BAUS. As President, Kieran brought in guidance on job planning, which has had a major influence on homogenising the pathways to service delivery. Currently, he is co-chair of the GERFT Urology Initiative. So by comparison to his contemporaries, few are as well-placed to talk about the changes in neurology and how these have affected professionalism in the specialty. Kieran, you're very welcome. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. Now, Kieran, professionalism has changed over the last two decades. and You've been a consultant for 25 years. How have things changed for the profession as far as delivery of care is concerned in that time? In some ways, Steve, I think the profession is almost unrecognisable from what it was 25 uh, years ago. When I um, completed training, the expectation was that you would almost certainly be a master of all elements of urology. And that has certainly changed uh, dramatically. It's, it's no longer the case. Uh, subspecialization has come in. We have morphed in terms of what we do from being traditionally open surgeons to doing laparoscopy and robotics. And the nature of the profession, the way in which we deliver services has changed as well. So um, huge, huge changes in terms of how, how we work and our behaviours. And do you think that all of those changes have been for the good? Have they been better for the profession? More importantly, have they been better for the patient? Well, if we start with the patient, I think by and large things are better for the patient. It's difficult to argue with uh, the fact that we have certainly excellent metrics in relation to the outcome for our patients in relation to oncology. And I think the moves that we made to consolidate uh, two centres has made uh, a tremendous uh, difference for patients. And the outcomes achieved in these islands compare very favourably with what's going on inter internationally. I think in terms of uh, medics, it's, it's a mixed bag. We have more consistent training pathways, but it hasn't all been for the best. I think there is probably less variability in terms of the consultants that we produce at the end of training. But I think our training experience has, in truth, been quite a mixed bag. So it's a bit of a curate's egg then. I'd, I, I'd agree. We, as a consequence of the changes made in training, I think we have um, become in many ways less vocational. The vocational aspect of medicine was very important to me when I started, and I see a shift in that uh, in terms of what has happened over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, and I think people view medicine now more in terms of a career, uh, typically an eight to six, eight to eight job, and then at the end of their shift, they're happy to sign off. That's very different from what it was when I started. So there are going to be fewer people who are prepared to go the extra mile in looking after you when you need their uh, expertise. I have some amazing colleagues, and we're, we both have some amazing colleagues who certainly go the extra mile, but I think it's not untrue to say that fewer people are prepared to do that. Okay, so just thinking about the workforce, because that has expanded enormously over the last uh, 10 years in particular, how do you think the changes in the composition of the workforce have, have made a difference to the way that we deliver urology now? Oh, I, I think that has been brilliant. I, I'm really proud of the fact that urology 
as a specialty. There's approaching parity in terms of the number of male and female who are, who are doing the profession. And there's a tremendous ethnic mix in the, in the specialty. And that's good in societal terms. I think we can be justifiably proud of the way in which the specialty has developed in that way over, over the last mm, two decades. And do you think that that inclusion agenda also comes into play when we're looking at the uh, specialty and associate specialist sort of cadre? Well, well, I agree. Um, it, it does. But I think we need to recognise that because urology is such a broad mix, you can practise it on many different levels. And I think as particularly more women have come into the specialty, uh, some, but not all, find that it actually suits better to develop the sort of portfolio career because they're frequently trying to balance uh, issues in relation to home life and work, which simply isn't easy. I have a working wife, uh, and it's not been it's not been easy for uh, for us either. So I think the strides and the way in which the profession has been able to adapt to that is one of its big strengths. Okay, so if we just now consider the changes you, you've enumerated, the changes in the workforce. How have changes in working practice made a difference? Well, in, in terms of working practice, the way in which people view their careers ha has changed. So I think fewer people uh, work uh, full working weeks as we, we originally envisaged, so that more people uh, will, will choose to work part-time. Because we have greater diversity in terms of the specialty, Fewer people are actually completing training in unit time, and that's had implications for us. Because of the way in which on-call has seemed to be so, uh, so onerous, particularly in those units who aren't well supported by mid-grades, that has led to the appointment of more urologists. And as a consequence of appointing more urologists, we haven't necessarily had extra operating time. And so the specialty has changed in that way, so that we operate less and we've become predominantly an outpatient specialty. You mentioned there the increase in the number of people, but do you think that um, we have lost our mojo as far as the team vibe is concerned? Well, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. As urology has changed and we've become more efficient uh, in terms of bringing patients into hospitals for procedures, there's no longer the necessity for hospitals up and down the country to have wards. As a consequence of that, we've lost the ward basis for the specialty. So I and my colleagues increasingly have a peripathetic existence when on call, going, going around the hospital to find the urology patients or both, uh, both our elective patients and our inpatients. That uh, has really led to loss of cohesion in terms of uh, the care in hospital. It's not always for the good. And I think it's also had a detrimental effect on the team as well. When I started, most of my, indeed your training, Steve, was done on the basis of a one and two, one and three on call. And doing that meant that we got to know our peers and our senior colleagues very well indeed. And as a consequence of that, we went from work uh, to friendship frequently over, over the years. And because that's no longer the case and people are rostered, we have less contact with our juniors and our juniors in turn have less contact with us. And, and I think that has had a detrimental effect uh, on the way in which we, we function. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there are so many things that have changed so dramatically. It's like uh, MDTs consuming a lot of our working time. There seems to be an MDT for almost everything now. 
Yeah, this it needs to be stopped. It needs to be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's contentious. <laughs> well, um, stopped is perhaps too strong a word, but it does need to. The MDT is the last bastion of the scoundrel for many things. Be, people aren't being encouraged. I, I'm clearly warming up, you can tell. People aren't being encouraged uh, to make decisions, and frequently they put off making decisions so that the potential decision, which is frequently self-evident, can be ratified by the MDT. And that does no favours to our patients. And of course, part of an essential part of our team in days gone by were our secretary. And now, of course, they've been significantly reduced in their function. And um, one of the big issues, I think, for the contemporary urologist is the rise of the electronic patient record. What are your views about the effects that is having upon work throughput, particularly in the outpatient environment? It complicates it significantly. For a typical clinic, if I, I like to prepare my clinics before I go, and I need to go into the electronic patient record, which can be clunky, although it is much better than, than pen and paper. Uh, you then need to see the patient and frequently put something into the electronic patient record, order the tests on the electronic patient record, and some colleagues are then doing the letter on the electronic patient record. And this really slows slows things down. And at a time when we're trying to recover from COVID, urology as a specialty does about 2.8 million outpatient appointments a, a year. We have had some expansion in the specialty over the past number of years, but it is very difficult to do the large clinics of our youth now with, with, with EPR. It, it simply can't, can't be done. Well, having said that, of course, we are now much more judicious in the people that we offer follow-up appointments to. Well, if only that were true. <laughs> Unfortunately, in, in my capacity as, uh, as Gerft co-lead and visiting 126 hospitals, most of them virtually in, in England, uh, there is a huge variation in terms of uh, follow-up nationally. And we have some way to go, really, to crack the follow-up problem. We, we could and should be doing a lot better. Okay, let's just change tack ever so slightly. I mentioned that uh, you were uh, or you oversaw the job planning document, which to a greater or lesser extent was meant to homogenise the approach to the urological job plan. Do you think that that document or what it was intended to achieve has been an unqualified success? I think the honest answer is I, I don't know as to... Even, I, I think it's been as co-chair. Yeah, even as, even as Gerft co-chair, uh, and I'll, I'll explain why. When you do these documents, the genesis of this document essentially came out of... Uh, Sounding grand now, a Delphic process whereby we did lots of lots of consulting around to understand what people were doing. It was produced uh, through BAUS, and lots of people fed into it. So it was broadly speaking a, a consensus document. It's interesting that despite the fact that I am Gerft co-chair, we don't have a lot of evidence about what is genuinely happening in outpatients. And we know that there is a lot of unsupervised work going on in relation to outpatients, particularly by our junior colleagues. And we know that our junior colleagues and our nursing colleagues are probably more likely to err on the safe side and bring patients back to the clinic when it's perhaps not important. 
Uh, curiously, one bit of work that is going on through the National Recovery Programme is to look at templates for clinics. I haven't seen the information for urology, but in relation to the information for some other specialties, it's clear there's still a wide uh, divergence uh, in terms of what is being done at a patient level. So some people have pretty straightforward clinics and other people continue to push the envelope quite significantly. Do you think that uh, job planning in parallel with the appraisal process has facilitated things moving forward? Or do you think that basically weak clinical management has often perpetuated the desires of the individual over the needs of the yeah, service? It, yeah, the, the latter. I think what you what you just said is absolutely uh, absolutely correct. So for, for many years, people have basically been allowed to decide where their particular interest lies and what it is that they're prepared to do. And that really doesn't match the, the needs of the service. 80% of, of urology is core, okay? And there's a huge demand to actually meet that for our patients. That's what we're there for, is to, to look after our, our patients. But colleagues don't always believe, believe that and feel that they've been appointed to do particular things and wish to plough a different furrow. So I think it's one of the real tensions in the system to ensure that, in fact, we do try to match what should be delivered on behalf of the patients. So it's a matter of expectations of the service versus the expectations of the individual. Yes. So you, you mentioned there or previously that um, you felt that training had in many ways been improved. It's certainly become much more homogenous. What do you think about um, people being adequately trained for the non-clinical components of the consultant role? We've got ISCP. We've had that for, what, 12, nearly 15 years. And yet there's nothing in uh, their ST7 part of that document to suggest that, you know, there are vocational elements to what they are about to embark upon as a consultant. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, that, that speaks to the fact that most uh, clinicians view being clinical director as, uh, as being Muggins' term to actually take up the role, and that we have been poor in this country in terms of developing medical management and developing the next group of medical managers. Because typically what happens in units is that the, the medical lead takes on the particular role. He or she is given a couple of sessions, uh, which frequently unfortunately isn't enough and certainly isn't enough in larger organisations to help tackle all, all the issues. They frequently get these jobs but don't necessarily function at a level where they can significantly influence. They seem to be the conduit of information from, from senior management rather than actually deciding the strategy and how services are going to be delivered. Many colleagues, I think, find it pretty unsatisfactory and one of their happier days is when they demit the role and pass it on to somebody else, unfortunately. And that's a great that's a great shame because we do need to develop medical managers, getting back to your educational point. It's hugely important and it needs to be seen as an important facet of a medical career moving forward. So apart from recognizing maybe that not everybody is either suited to be a leader or a manager, how else do you think that we could improve everybody's lot? Because Buggins' turn does come round, and nearly everybody, particularly in a smaller unit, has to do some, has to take up the managerial mantle at some point in their career. 
Well, I think your, your first point is important. So it, it, it doesn't suit everybody. But I think the nature of being a consultant in uh, today's NHS is that there are, I think you produced a grid a number of years ago, Steve, with all the various roles that need to be considered in terms of um, of a consultant's life, be it in education, be it in management, be it in audit, be it in research, be it in teaching, etc. So all these things need to um, need to be looked at in, in the round. And the smart unit and those units that have functioned successfully will look at those elements of a consultant's uh, career and the portfolio, and then will work out uh, who it is that might be best suited to doing those particular roles and ensuring that they get the, the right training and the right development to support them. Yeah, I mean, thank you for giving a great plug for the BJUI Knowledge uh, module on parallel careers. Well, it's very good. Now, another uh, another thing that uh, has changed dramatically is the environment of complaint and blame. So there have been many more regulatory changes by the GMC over the last 20 years now since Good Medical Practice first came out. And, of course, that is about to be reissued again in January of next year. What effect do you think that that culture has had on the professionalism that people need to demonstrate? I think it's been a hugely difficult time in medicine uh, over the past few years, and the relationship with the GMC and the profession has has been problematic at best. I think the Bawagawa and the David Selu verdicts did the profession no help and entrenched, I think, in large sectors of the profession, the fact that the GMC really wasn't wasn't on their side and didn't really appreciate the difficulties under which lots of, lots of conditions are, are working. We, we know that probably about 25%, one in four consultants will be investigated by the GMC in the, in, the, in the course of their career. And the bottom line about all this is nobody goes to work in the morning with the aim of doing harm. And people are frequently working under uh, difficult circumstances in a service that, in comparison with many of our other OECD countries, is understaffed okay, uh, and under-resourced. And we do phenomenally well in many aspects of medical care. But the truth of the matter is that we don't have enough clinicians looking after our patients. I mean, what you are inferring to a greater or lesser extent is that the NHS needs to be, rather than the profession, needs to be taking greater responsibility for the resources that it gives us to do our job. Yeah, and, and that, that was writ large in, in terms of certainly the Bawagaba affair, and I think in relation to the sorts of things that push my colleagues, um, our colleagues, uh, under pressure at the moment, if we if we look at uh, emergency care and, for example, nephrostomy provision now, emergency situation, in many units, it is really difficult to get this organised because there's a lack of SOPs enabling patients to be transferred easily for these sorts of things to be done. And consequently, people live in fear that the septic patient is going to come to harm under their care, despite the fact that they're doing their best to sort out the patient. And as a consequence of that, then may ultimately end up in a coroner's court and defending their actions. Or indeed be in jail. I think urosepsis is probably the commonest reason for imprisonment of urologists. 
Do you think that the focus on the importance of health and well-being of the workforce has been fully recognised and is actually <laughs> being embraced, or do you think that that is yet another tick box exercise? No. I think our junior colleagues have led the way with this, in truth. So when you and I started some years ago, it was certainly seen as a 24-7 role. And well, we know that many of our colleagues burnt out. We know the burnout figures in relation to the profession were working terribly hard. But I think our junior colleagues have, have led the way and have a greater understanding that it is important that they have other facets in terms of their life to keep their physical and mental health good. Yeah. And and as you know, I mean, I, I think that this is dreadfully important. And I think that that is a role of the people who've actually passed this way once in passing a certain amount of that knowledge down to people who are still on the journey. Yeah. So um, stress at work is a, a big issue. How do you think the workplace could be made less stressful? <laughs> I see you chuckling. <laughs> yeah, I am, I, I, I am chuckling. So I stopped operating a couple of years ago. I wasn't unhappy to stop operating. But the biggest stress in terms of my working week was the sense that I was responsible for list of patients and these patients had made various arrangements to come into hospital at an appointed time to get an operation and I would go down and I would see them in the unit before before theatre would begin and I would confirm the consents have it have a chat and do the usual things to then find that I couldn't then do what it was I set out to do because patients were being counseled and the biggest stress in my life um was having to go back to these patients and saying we can't do what it is we set out to do, knowing that they had left lots to be there on time, etc. And we couldn't fulfill what it is we set out to do. And this caused enormous stress to feel that people aren't in control of their professional lives. So <laughs> in terms of that, I think that if we could improve our throughput, we could reduce cancellations. That's one of the things for me that would make a, a big difference. In terms of the working working life, yeah, I I agree, and I, I I think that the disappointed patient weighs heavy on both you, the service, yeah. and the amount of additional work in uh, responding yeah. to complaints and then trying to reschedule them. With yeah, complaints that sometimes aren't us sometimes aren't of our own making that there are inherent difficulties in in the system and as a consequence of that you end up being the front man for a system that you know isn't functioning as well as it might yeah yeah well with my schizophrenic thought processes i'm now going to skip to something completely different when you were a trainee, you embarked on the Oxford EBM course, and you've written widely about the impact of bias on decision making. How have those experiences changed your views about the use of evidence to drive practice? Uh, profoundly here is the short answer. In the first instance, it's affected my reading uh, because I'm very careful now in terms of what, uh, what I read and perhaps more importantly about what I believe as a consequence of what I read. But the greatest change, I think, has been in my relationship with patients, that when I see a patient in a clinic with a, a raised PSA, the first thing that comes to my mind is what are the potential implications of that? How does the, the test function? And what is it that I should be saying to the patient based on what it is that I know, rather than 
approaching a patient in a formulaic way and taking a history. I'm already thinking of other things in relation to that. So it, it had a profound effect in terms of the way I've practiced medicine over the, over the last 25 years. So do you think there are any downsides to the use of EBM? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think that the, the cookbook recipe nature of EBM uh, meant that I think patients were perhaps pigeonholed and told that they should have various things done. And the bit that's left out of it is really the desire of the patients and the wishes of the of the patients. So I think what EBM allows you to do is say that this is what we think is the state of the knowledge. This is where our uncertainty lies. But ultimately, medicine is an art. It's not a, it's not a science. It's actually trying to bring the science to the art. And the clue of the art is in terms of the good communication and understanding the patient's desires and needs before a final decision is made in relation to their management. And just to illustrate that in relation to, the, I mentioned the PSA problem, it's, it's to put the other side of the coin and say, yes, you have a mildly elevated PSA. Yes, we might pick up prostate cancer in a certain proportion. But in fact, the vast majority of patients come through this process and don't have cancer, don't need to have anything done. And that's on that basis of having that conversation that the patient can then decide what is appropriate for them. And I've had very little difficulty with that when you can articulate it well to patients. We've got much better research infrastructure. We've got much more evidence now. And of course, we have guidelines that uh, almost slavishly at times we, we follow. And you say it can be detrimental to the individualization of care. What is it that those guidelines aren't taking into account when it's considering the individual? Well, I think, I think the big thing in relation to both research and guidelines is comorbidity. It is that trials are frequently done in patients of a certain age who don't have what the trials might think are co-confounding conditions that might influence outcomes. And yet we continually try to apply our guidelines to patients who are, are comorbid. So where I work in the kind of northwest of Manchester, there is a significant amount of comorbidity. And the average person over the age of 50 has three associated comorbidities. And consequently, when we get patients referred in with various things and guidelines say that we should do it in a particular, in, in a particular way, those guidelines may not be appropriate for patients who you know, are severely arteriopathic or have coexisting respiratory conditions. So in, in that way, guidelines is what it says. It's a guide. It's yeah. not something it definitely should do. And obviously, having worked in the same region as you, I mean, for people that are interested, you can actually look on the uh, the various governmental databases and actually find the comorbidity indices and the deprivation indices in the locality in which you're working. Yeah. And it, it, undoubtedly, it does have uh, an effect. So I would take it from that refinement of uh, guidelines to take age and comorbidity into greater account would help significantly. And uh, just using your PSA analogy, you know, having a, a cutoff level at which it really doesn't make an awful lot of difference what you do would be incredibly helpful and stop people um, seeing patients of 80 with a PSA of six. And I, I think we're going to see that in, in, in the next few months. We'll see more pragmatic um, piece of work coming out in relation to cutoffs for PSA. Okay, well, we've almost reached our time. Kieran, you've given us a very succinct overview of how urology as a specialty has changed. 
and how the professionalism necessary to accommodate those changes has evolved. We work in a very different world from when you and I started our career. And uh, I can only thank you um, and uh, hopefully thank you on behalf of the people who are listening to this um, for uh, your wisdom. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Steve, it's been great fun. Thank, thanks so much. <laughs>